The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome back to another episode of Trading Secrets. Today, we are joined by one of the stars of Netflix Selling the OC, Tyler Staniland. What a great name, by the way. Tyler Staniland. I feel like you could have been in sports, could have been real estate. But Tyler's recent rise to fame came after his success with the Oppenheim Group selling luxury real estate in the Orange County community over the past several years. And you guys know we had Mr. Jason Oppenheim himself. So it would be good to hear from someone that reports to him. What you may not know about Tyler is that he is actually a fifth-generation realtor, fourth-generation Laguna Beach native, and has several years under his belt as a, ready for this, professional surfer. We're going to discuss the ins and outs of the professional surfing career, how Tyler's generational real estate experience has helped him professionally. We're going to talk a little TV land. And of course, we are definitely going to have to get some real estate tips from him. So Tyler, thank you so much for being on Trading Secrets. Thanks for having me, Jason. It's good yeah, to be here. It's good to be here. Now, what's interesting is the last time I saw you, Tyler, we were on this Dubai trip. I didn't know you, but I remember when the crew was talking about who we need to have on the show next, your name came up. I'm like, oh my God, he was on the Dubai trip, yeah. and we didn't get to say hello. I know. And I was on the rooftop. We'll talk about that trip for a minute, but I'm on the rooftop. I'm looking for all my bachelor people. Couldn't find them anywhere. But as I passed you, I remember as one of your friends or as a manager or a family member, they're like, oh, no, this is bad. And they look at the phone and you had this reaction of like, oh, geez. And I want to paint this picture, guys. One of the most gorgeous, pristine hotels in Dubai, top rooftop, infinity pools everywhere. You could see Dubai from a distance. It's like a 10 out of 10 heaven. And as I walked by you, it seemed like a 1 out of 10 hell. So first of all, we're going to talk Dubai, but everything good? Everything's no, no issues? Everything's good. Yeah, yeah. That, okay. Dubai was a funny trip. I mean, like you said, it was 10 out of 10 in every way. I mean, there was pretty much like gold flakes floating in the air. Like it was as, <laughs> as extravagant as it could have gotten for that sort of a vacation. And I took my brother, which was awesome. To be honest, like we weren't even sure that, that it was real because it seemed like too good to be true. Like all expenses paid trip to Dubai, some sort of special performance. So we were like literally two weeks out Googling, like, is there anything out there? Are we going to get like sex trafficked or like what's happening? You know, <laughs> and then we showed up and it was exactly what was promised, which was awesome. But yeah, obviously with my show, there's been a lot of rumors and speculation. And, and so there was, because I was there with another castmate, there was a lot of rumors and speculation about what was happening in my personal life. Obviously I'm newly single, so... People saw some photos of us there and trying to jump to conclusions. So obviously I wasn't privy to what you saw, but I was probably sharing it to my brother or or even my my co-star Alex Hall and being like, look what people are saying. This is crazy. Interesting. Um, and okay. we were both there. You know, I was there with my brother. She was there with a plus one. And so it was two separate trips, but from the outsider's perspective, somebody can take a photo and it looks as if you're there together. I'm newly single. It looks, you know, it does look scandalous. And so there was lots of media about that, which obviously wasn't the case. So I appreciate you bringing that up because now I can clear my name with that. I didn't yeah. know that your castmates were there. So I didn't even know that was your castmate until right now. So there, Got was, it. there was one castmate there. And in, in fact, we didn't even know that we were each going until like two weeks prior. And I was like, I'll be in Dubai. So I got to miss a week of filming. And, and then she's like, I'm going to be in Dubai. And so that's how we put it together. Got it. And then when I got there, obviously there was, you know, as you know, there was all walks of life, musicians and people on TV and authors. And just, it was a really cool collective group of humans. But yeah, no, it was, it was just, it was a lot happening. It was a bizarre trip. We actually did a full episode breaking down all the Dubai 
analytics that we got from the PR team that ran it, yeah. the, the ins and outs of it, the money behind it, all things. So I want to get your take on that real quick. But while we're on this topic, I think it's an important one because I think in anybody's life, personal items and personal issues collide with the professional world. Right. Maybe not on the scale of the top of the Atlantis Royale in Dubai, <laughs> someone thinking that you're dating your coworker. Yeah. But how do you just in general handle just the mayhem that could happen in your personal life and the mayhem that might be under the spotlight or someone's making up a rumor while still staying focused on, you know, extremely competitive industry and yeah. work? I think I'm still honestly trying to find that balance. I've never really been in the spotlight like I am right now. So it's something that I'm still trying to figure it out. When the show first launched, it was crazy. And there's a lot of, you know, you've been through it. People have an opinion and you could literally be saving puppies from starvation and somebody will still find a way to look negatively upon you for that. So honestly, it, it kind of just, it took me just time to figure out how to do it. And for me, like at this point, I've just kind of gotten thicker skin and I kind of just ignore it. And there's, there's not really much of a secret there other than like you kind of just have to block it out and focus on you because the noise is irrelevant and focusing on it does just distract you from what you should be doing anyway. So yeah, obviously we're, we're filming an upcoming season right now. And so you'll see kind of me trying to learn how to deal with all that coming soon. So, all right, there yeah. you go. There's a little tease. It's, yeah. it's coming soon guys, season two. So be on the watch for that. I think it is something that like people at all levels uh, deal with. It's always easier to hear and even yeah. say than actually execute because we all have feelings and like when people are saying negative things about us, like that sucks and it throws totally. us off. But to your point, that's kind of the purpose of all these critics and all these rumors. It's like to throw you off, stay on track, stay focused on what you're doing because no one else is going to do that for you. No one else is, but it is easier said than done. And it's kind of trial by fire, to be honest, for me anyways. And yeah, I don't know. I think I'm still trying to, to figure it out, but that's kind of the only way I can. That's the best advice I have, though, is just ignore it and keep pressing on. If people are talking about it, you're probably doing something right. I love that. That's a good yeah. piece of advice. That is Tyler and I's interaction, and there's some good business advice in there. I want to go first and foremost to this whole professional surfing thing. Yeah. I saw that there was an outlet out there that called you the world's most handsome professional <laughs> surfer. That is a dangerous combo, being the most handsome professional surfer and being able to make money on that. How long does it take to someone become like a professional? How's that world work from a business perspective? Well, first of all, it seems like a pretty generous compliment, but <laughs> the professional surfing world is strange. By 13 or 14, you were competing every single weekend somewhere. I grew up in California, so somewhere on the California coast. And you were basically trying to get a national rating. And from there, like some kids had really big contracts. At like 15, 16, kids are getting paid six figures, which really? is huge. I was not one of those kids. I was good, but I wasn't like getting paid six figures. Question for you though. Yeah. Obviously we know with like all professional sports, there's leagues, there's teams. Mm -hmm. Who's actually paying the six figures? Where's that money coming from? Certain, so surf brands say like, I see potential in this kid. He is the next world champion. I'm gonna invest him in him now, give him all the best training, all the best everything, and see if I can, you know, make this kid live up to his potential. And so the surf industry kind of has their choices and that's who they pick. And and a lot of times they are really good at picking, but sometimes, you know, it's it's a tough, it's a grind, like every sport, but you do start really, really young. And your careers don't last very, very long. I mean, I would say, you know, previously, there were pro servers that, you know, were told to retire by 25, 26, 27. And Why so, though? It just, it is like surfing back grueling on the body? Kinda, it can be. And also back in the day, I mean, people weren't taking care of their bodies as well. Now, okay. you know, you have Kelly Slater, who I think is 52 now, and he won, you know, a world tour event last year, at, right, just before his 50th or 51st birthday or something, which is crazy, unheard of. 
So our careers are, are lasting longer. But as a kid, you know, you started pretty young. You were competing every single weekend. And then you essentially graduated at some point. Usually, like, we, you graduated high school and you hit the, the world qualifying series. Okay. Which is kind of, which is, yeah, how you would, and you'd have to be in the top 15 in the, in the world at that time to qualify for the world tour. So I was doing those, those contests. I had sponsorships and was making, like, kind of like a travel budget. But I wasn't, like, making money as a kid. Okay. And then I started competing had like some okay r results, you know, in on the pro circuit, but didn't really do that well. So I actually got my real estate license at 19 to kind of fall back on. Okay. And then I actually kind of left the sport to be on, not left. I got sick when I, when I was 22. Okay. So I got really sick, spent a hundred days in, in the hospital, had what seven surgeries. Yeah. Basically like life-saving surgeries. <gasps> I had this thing called ulcerative colitis okay. and ulcerative colitis is an autoimmune disorder that affects your large intestine. And essentially my large intestine perforated. I went septic, didn't know. Wow. So just crazy, crazy story. But it took me like a year just to even be able to not, I had like a ostomy bag. So it took sure. me a year, but before I could kind of get back to real life. So jumped into to real estate, ended up surfing again after not surfing for a year and a half or so. And then started working with this brand called Catch Surf. And that kind of, they kind of like jump-started my whole surf career again. And so I went from being a competitive surfer to now I was the other side of surfing, which is a free surfer, where I was kind of just paid to travel and have fun and take photos and go to cool surf destinations. I mean, that's the dream. So it was the dream. And I, and I was super burnt out on competing. And to, to be honest, there was people that were a lot better at competing than me. So it was kind of like the best case scenario for my surf career, but I just got there by funny circumstance. Okay. Curiosities are going crazy in my head yeah. with this surf stuff. I just have a few questions then we'll move on. But yeah. when you are competing at that level, mm -hmm. what's a prize pool like in surfing? It's changed a lot. So now at the, at the highest level of surfing, if you win that event, it's a hundred thousand dollars. Oh shit. And they've got, I was I not expecting that. I think they have 10 events per year. Prize money is not where pro surfers make their, their money. So it is a lot, but like your qualifying series events, you know, I think it's like a thousand dollars per star and, and they have like one through six stars or something like that. So, so I think like the most money you, you can make on the qualifying series, like 50 or 60 grand or something. Got it. When you were even doing your freestyle, did you make enough to live or did you make enough to save money and be wealthy? Like what was the mm -hmm. income around? I mean, so I, I still have those, those endorsements in place now. Oh, you do? Yeah. And so, so you're still a professional surfer. That feels like a very uh, generous <laughs> stretch. Term. Yeah. Cause, cause obviously my, my focus is elsewhere, but I still have those contracts in place. I think if I lived in like Ohio or something, yeah, I could be living and saving and all that. I mean, to be honest, it's like just under six figures. And so I live in Orange County and Orange County is really expensive. Yeah, you can't. So it's like, you, you can't really live off that. And that's, you know, at this point it's supplemental income to my real estate career. What a hell so, of a side hustle though. Yeah. Being the most handsome professional oh, surfer, making a couple bucks. Come on. But no, it's, it's good and it's fun. And, and to be honest, it's nice to have that balance where I'm able to focus on work, but have something that I'm passionate about as a side hustle and get to go to cool places because of it. That so. is really cool. As a Buffalo boy, I know nothing about surfing, but I had to dive into that because that is an industry we haven't touched and probably never will touch on Trading yeah. Secrets, so I had to get into that. Yes. Let's get into the real estate stuff. So yes. I think your job is fascinating. I think that the TV aspect is just incredible. Your family history within this space has got to be beneficial, but I want to jump right to Jason Oppenheim. We had Jason Oppenheim on the podcast, yep. Okay, and we scheduled him a couple times, and then when when we finally got him on, his PR team and his admin set everything up. Yep. And so he gets on and he was like, kind of like, okay, um, so what is this again? And I was like, ah, no worries. Like we get that all the time. It's his trade secrets of the premise. We'll take anything out. Blah, 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 blah. Yep. Okay, great, great, great. So how long is this going to be? And, <laughs> and his team sent us the calendar invite. <laughs> we didn't send it. And it yeah. was a calendar invite for an hour. 
And I was like, ah, probably like, and I had like a whole studio and everything. We we're doing a virtual. And I, I was like, ah, man, probably like max an hour, but I usually can keep them to 30 minutes, 45 minutes and we're good. Yeah. He just goes, can't do that. Sorry. I was like, dude, your team sent the invite. Like, I, I don't know that. what to do. And he's like, uh, give me one second. Makes a few calls. I don't know who he talked to. Put on a mute. He goes, all right, listen. I'll do as long as I can, but I got to make it quick. I got clients across the street at a, a lunch. Let's just roll this thing. And we ended up getting, I think it was 32 minutes out of him. I think we got yeah. like more than actually 30, but pretty intense dude. Uh, he was very direct. And then when we got him talking, he was a 10 out of 10. He is. Very smart, yeah. very sharp, very to the point and yeah. brilliant. Gave some of the best advice we've had in less than 30 minutes or whatever it was. Yeah. How did you end up landing a job within his group and what was that like? So... Obviously, I'm fifth generation real estate. I've worked with the family since the dawn of time. That was kind of, I've, yeah, I got licensed at 19 and, you know, I'm 33 now. I think when I joined his brokerage, I was 31 or 32. And I was just kind of like looking, I was looking to kind of leave the family brokerage and kind of carve my own path. And he bought this building in Orange County that is very like focal to Newport Beach. Like you, you drive by it, you can't miss it. And especially with his remodel, I mean, I'm sure, you, what do you, what you, I'm sure you've seen what he's done up here in LA. Like when Jason does something, he does it. Big. Well, and big. <laughs> so obviously he's built a very specific brand and it just kind of seemed like a good fit for my clients. And I really enjoy him as a human as well. As you've experienced, he's just like a no BS guy. And I felt like there was a lot that I could learn from him. So it was just a good fit and a good and good timing with him opening that office. How did your family feel about you leaving the family brokerage to go to someone like uh, Oppenheim Group? They were supportive. There's still a, a lot of overlap with my family and our clients. And so okay. we still share lots of deals and and we have a few properties co-listed right now. So I'm gone, but I'm also not gone. Got it. Yeah. Interesting. You're yeah. still there, but you're still doing your own thing. I'm carving my own path, but I'm still, yeah, very, okay. very close to the family. Now we talk a lot about this, a lot of different shows, a lot of different careers. And we talk about the kind of the strategy and thought process of the moves and why you've made them. I got to imagine if you're going to the Oppenheim group, especially when you have this type of background that you do and your family is so ingrained in the community, there has to be some part of you that is thinking, not only is this a great play for my real estate career, but this could be a good like exposure platform play as well. Is that at all part of the thought process when you go to a, a group like the Oppenheim group? I mean... For sure, but we have agents in office that aren't part of the show at all. However, they they use that as part of their leverage to get listings and clients. And in Orange County, there are clients that want to be part of it, and there are clients that it actually you know works against you because people are a little bit more more private down there. But absolutely, that is a factor and was part of my. I did consider that when making the move. Yeah. Well, it makes. I think it makes sense, especially in your market, because the audience that might be watching this or might possibly be the same audience where you can land a big deal with. Totally. And ultimately, it's just giving you a platform to show your skill set in front of millions of people. And so, yeah, it's kind of a no-brainer if you can be a part of something like that. Absolutely. And and it helps your clients as well. I mean, the exposure that they get by, by listing with you is next to impossible. When you're going up against other brokers in the town, is the Oppenheim Group a clear standout? Or is there any type of stigma with the Oppenheim Group? Like, yeah, it's a TV show. Like, we're the professionals. Come work with us. Don't mind Oppenheim Group. Like, does that ever happen? I mean, Yeah. And, and Orange County is really small and there are only so many top dogs down there. And so that, that was a thing, but you know, his office has been open for a couple of years and it's doing really well. And he has, he's become a force in that market. And, and I think having people like, like me who grew up down there and, you know, knows 
not only the industry, but knows the community, it does help kind of bring credibility to the brand. But Jason's brand alone competes with everybody else. Yeah, because we've even had some brokers from other shows come on Mm -hmm. and they'll be like, listen, there are some people that are on his show. They don't know anything about real estate. They're there to be a character. But they said, obviously, that's not you. But other people I'm sure you can think of without naming any names. Mm -hmm. But they're like, even those people that compete in the different shows, everything, they're like, Jason is the guy. Like he is a hustler. He is a deal worker. He's one of the best in the business. So that makes sense. Did they find you or did you find them? Production? Yeah, just like the whole concept of you going to them. Was it something that you initiated or something they initiated? Something that they initiated. Interesting. Yeah, and I was, I think I was the last one to join, actually. I joined the brokerage basically two weeks before we started filming because I was just on the fence. I had a really good thing going and I was very unsure. And then, you know, I talked with Jason and I took the leap and it's been a really great thing for my career. So if you want to become an agent, someone back home is thinking about becoming an agent. For the most part, the only way you're paid is when you do a deal, right? You are commission-based, 100%. All commission-based. Yep. And that's a, that's a standard. doesn't matter if you're working for Jason Oppenheim or yeah. you're working for some group in Buffalo, New York. You are commission-based. Yep. I believe there are some brokerages that pay salaries, but you know, then you're stuck on a salary and you don't have the opportunity to make you know six, seven figures. Which, if you're a shark, you would never want to do that. You wouldn't. But then with the show component, obviously there's some type of fee to be on the show too. So you have other sources of income. There too. is. I mean, yeah. Yeah, okay. there is. Okay, but it's marginal. It's not going to make you rich in uh, OC. <laughs> the, it's not going to make you rich, no. Okay, no. got it. You're filming. Yeah. And obviously there's drama in the filming and there's other things they have to capture. And I'm sure there are things that aren't connected just to producing new deals. So how big of a distraction did being on the show actually connect to your performance as, a, as an agent? I think season one, I had never been, I had never filmed, I had never been on camera like that. So it was a lot. And I think we were all trying to figure out how is this all going to work and how do we still have our jobs? You know, I think we only end up filming two to three days a week when we are in production. So you still have time to, you know, do your real job, but it is a little bit nerve wracking and, and it is, it can be a distraction. After one season, now filming season two and three, do you, when you look forward to the future of your career, do you think you will always want to do the double dip where you're being filmed while simultaneously being an agent? Or do you see like, I might need a break of the filming to just focus on the agent part? I do enjoy it. I love being able to show the world our properties. I think we have a very unique coastline. It is something that I feel proud to be a part of and show what we do, you know? What do you think is like one of the biggest misconceptions that you've like heard from that noise that you'd be like, you should know this. Like I'm in there every day and that is a misconception. That's not the reality of what we do and how we do it. Ultimately, we film for hours and hours and hours, but they can only fit so much into one episode. And so sometimes there are stories that seem like the full version, but really they're parts of stories that can tell a version of the, the story. And a lot of times the viewers will take what they see as gospel when when that is part of the story, but there's also something more there. So learning how, how to deal with people's opinions like that has been a journey. A hundred percent. I think you only see such a small portion of it. Very rarely is the entirety of the context shown. Mm -hmm. And then I think perceptions, rumors, and instant judgments uh, are stemmed from a very small portion. I also love to take stuff like this that's in like, you know, Hollywood TV land and connected to people back home that whatever job you might be doing, what's interesting is that's the same rhetoric in almost any company, mm-hmm. in any industry. Right. The boss's boss's boss is gonna see and hear very small samples about you. Mm-hmm. They're gonna hear it from their boss and then they're gonna hear it from the person under them and then they might talk to one person they're connected with very well and they have a good or bad opinion of you. 
And it's oftentimes in life, whether you're on a TV show or not, people have very small snippets of a story that actually connect to the reality and the truth of who you are. Right. And I think anyone, no matter what your role is, that thinks otherwise really needs to reshape that. And also that's why I'm such a big proponent of no matter what form it is, make sure you're an advocate for yourself and make sure you tell the story that it needs to be told. Because if you don't, people will tell it for you. Right. 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 And the wrong story is going to get out. And don't exactly. be afraid to speak up. You are not pumping your tires too much. You're not arrogant. You need to tell your story and you need to advocate for yourself. Yeah. Like that's a huge one. It's a huge one. And, and a lesson that I've learned the hard way recently is, you know, when, when, through this process, there's been lots of media and speculation and attention and something that I haven't always touched on because it is a weird thing. You know, I don't want to focus on it or read it. But if you don't tell your story to your point, then people will tell it for you. And yeah. ultimately, the wrong story gets told. Yep. So. so my my like the first time that ever happened to me, like like where there was a story or there's a rumor that just wasn't true. My natural inclination was ignore, let it go down the drain, compartmentalize and don't address it. And I quickly learned that if you don't speak up, if you don't say something in your, not even defense, but just in your truth, right? no one's going to hear it. Right. No one's going to hear it. And part of the situation, whether it's personal matters or business matters or whatever it may be, tell the truth, but tell your truth, right? right. Because if you don't, who knows what the hell is going to happen out there? Right. I think that's a big one in all areas of life. Yeah. You know? Huge one. Any of these numbers you don't want to share, we have the, the viewing audience is called the Money Mafia. Okay. You just say the word mafia and I won't even ask again. Okay. But I got to ask, I got to thinking of a couple. Okay. What is like the average sized home that you do, would you say? If you had to like take all your stuff and like put it in an average, what do you think it is? As far as like price point? Price point, yeah. Mm, I mean, we'll say, I'll just say $5 million. Okay. Yeah. Do you have one outlying success story or one epic person that you represented that like is your number one trophy? It's like your world, professional world surfing of a real estate deal you did? Uh, my dad and I sold a, a property to Mark Cuban at the Montage. Wow. Um, which was pretty cool. We sold that to him. It's been a few years now. And I think, he's, I think, I think he still owns the property. I don't know if he lives there. But. Got it. That's pretty cool. That was pretty cool. And when, like, a guy like Mark Cuban, who we all know is a multi-billionaire, yeah, are you actually working with him, or do you like have a team that he works through? It was kind of both. It was yeah. kind of both. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Let's just say someone's thinking about buying their first home right now. I'm going to get away from the numbers here. What type of advice would you give them in a market like this, which has a ton of, I'm just going to say, fear-driven rhetoric or media out there about recession and what's happening in the market, yeah. and they're afraid to buy, they're going to continue to rent. What's your advice to them? My advice would be, if you can afford to buy, buy, because from, from what I'm seeing, prices are probably going to stay where they are. And although rates are still higher than what they were, historically, they're still very low. And if rates do fall, you can always refinance. So if you can afford to buy, buy now. Got it. How do you have a way of any, of advice you'd give people if they didn't know if they could afford or could afford a, a home? Yeah. So obviously I'm not a financial professional, sure. but, but I have people that I would connect them with. And I would say, get pre-approved, talk with a lender, see what you can do. And a lot of times you can afford much more than you think, but until you talk with a, a specialist, you just don't know. You know? Okay. What about selling your home, right? Like you see like you yep. know, people on Redfin or Zillow, obviously we've seen massive drop off since uh, interest rates have been moving at the rate they have. Yeah. So they're him and hawing about selling. What is your advice or thoughts to them? I mean, prices are still very high and inventory is very low. So if you have something special, people are going to want to buy it. You know, 
although rates are, are up, we're still not seeing a flood of new products. So the opportunity as, as a seller is, is still there. It's just, you know, what is your plan after you, you sell? What do you want to do? Are you looking to move up, move down, move out of state? Kind of what is your next move from selling? Because you can definitely make money, most likely, to, to, you know, even if you bought your property in like 2020, probably going to make money. Yeah. But what are you going to do next? If you had to take take every single person that's on some form of luxury real estate show and yeah. you put them into a big pile, every single one of them, the Josh flags, all A to Z, and you had to, and they all had to like report their income. What would you say like the low, high, medium approximation is of like what they might make in an annual basis? I mean, that's tough because obviously there's a huge range there. I think we work in a luxury market. If you're selling property and you sell more than a couple of properties, you're definitely making six figures. And the top guys are, you know, making seven and eight figures. Okay. But I would say, you know, guys like Jason Oppenheim, you know, the Flags, Altmans, they're, they're, they're definitely making seven figures on commission alone. When you look at your year, your year starts. Mm-hmm. When you look at goals, are you more focused on, I want to sell, I'm just making this up, but I want to sell 50 million or 100 million in real estate this year. Are you more focused on, I want at least, 30 transactions. What are some of the metrics that like define success for someone in your world? I look at kind of like a set gross dollar amount. I don't necessarily need, you know, let's say 20 transactions, but I, I let's say I, I want to, you know, I want to close $50 million th- this year. That's kind of what I focus on because $50 million could be one sale. You know, right, right now I've got almost $70 million listed. So if I can wow. sell and if I could sell all those, which, you know, would be only a few transactions would be a great year. So yeah, I'm kind of looking at dollar amount, not necessarily amount of transactions for myself personally. Yeah, and that's, it seems like no matter what the price point is, $5 million, $10 million, $20 million, $50 million home, correct me if I'm wrong, but the process and time cycle is usually pretty similar, right? The process and time cycle is the exact same. However, wow. it feels like sometimes with the smaller deals, those end up being more work. Interesting. It is, yeah. So imagine that, huh? I know, I know. Yeah, okay. And a lot of the bigger deals, people are paying cash. They've bought property before. They know what they're getting into and they kind of just, roll through the process. That's just such a wild thing. It's me. so like wild. people just 20 million cash. Like that's just crazy. The amount of cash that we've seen post COVID too is insane. It's crazy. I mean, it's people, wild. the amount of cash that people have always blows my mind. So now I want you to go into professor mode. Now I want to maybe become an agent. Yeah. Would, would you recommend this industry and what would be your first starting point steps to someone that's like, I do have interest. I would recommend it. There's a lot of upside, a lot of opportunity. Your schedule is flexible and by a flexible schedule, I mean, you have no free time at all, but, but it's, it's good. Yeah. I think the only way to find su- success though, is to dive headfirst. And I think that's like the, the case with any industry, but specifically real estate, like it takes a few years to get off the ground and it takes a few years to find success and build your clientele and start selling property. So yeah, I don't know. It, it just takes time. So I, I, I would say have patience, but yeah. have hustle. But also like what I heard from that too is because I hear so many people, yeah, I got a side thing. I do real estate. It's my takeaway from what you just said is you can't half-ass this. If you're going to do it, you got to go all in. Real estate's not a side hustle. Yeah. It's not, which is why real estate is my focus. And now surfing is my side hustle. I surf when I can, but real estate is my main focus. And that's the only way that I can find success in this industry is by being a hundred percent in. And I, and I do love that, but without being a hundred percent in, it's just not going to work. Got it. One of the last questions I have on the real estate side is pull through. Like you talked about, you have 70 million listed right now. Yep. What is the likelihood that you pull through 70 million? Like, is there a percentage that you, it's like an 80% that I'll pull it all through or how does that? Analyze? 
I mean, if, if things are priced well and accurately, they will sell. Sometimes it's a little bit of a dance. Sometimes it takes a while, but, but generally I don't lose listings. Generally, if I take a listing, I will do whatever it takes to make sure that it gets sold. I love that. That's yeah. a confident man right there. He knows I mean, the you, business. He you knows have it to all. be. You, you have, have to, to be. be. Yeah, yeah, no doubt about it. No matter what they're saying about you, good or bad online, you be confident you get that shit done. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. All right. So what can we expect? What is next for Tyler? Is it give us a little tease of Tyler's life? What's, what can num- we expect? The number one guy at the office. I mean, sure. Yeah. I'd love to sell the most, the most real estate. I'd love to take over Jason's, you know, top dog status. But sure. Yeah, I mean, we were in the process of filming seasons two and three. We're on a little bit of a break right now, so I'm going to go take a surf trip. I haven't been on one cool. of those for a long time, but yeah, I'm just honestly, I've got I've got some really great listings right now, focusing on selling those, and then, you know, I I don't know, take take the year as it comes. Okay, yeah. cool. Do you have being in front of the camera now? Reality TV show is what it's considered. Do you have any interest in moving into another reality TV show or like acting or anything like that? No. Okay, so this I'm, is your world, and if other cameras and lights come with it, sure, but I'm in this world, I'm not going anywhere. Pretty much, yeah, and I'm pretty reserved and more, I'm probably the shyest of the of the cast, so being part of this process has been an adjustment for me. Being in yeah. front of the camera and the spotlight has been, you know, interesting, and it's fun, but a, a lot comes with it as well. So I like what I'm doing now, but I'm definitely not, you know, actively seeking out other endeavors in the entertainment field. Yeah. And I think like when you do something like that, that makes you a little bit, let's say uncomfortable, the advantages and skills you can develop in those scenarios that can help in other areas of life or other professions are like massive. Totally. Right. Absolutely. That, that, that's huge. It's been, yeah, I've, I've grown a lot because of, of this process and, and, and it has been a really good thing. So Tyler, we know that season two is coming up and we are wrapping up with you here and you guys are finished filming and we'll see it soon. Can you tease anything from like your perspective, things we can see from Tyler or the show in general? I will say things get spicy. There's some drama. There's some incredible listings. There's some really big sales. And to be honest, it kind of just feels like season one, but much more elevated. So I'm excited for the world to see it. It's going to be a good thing. Let me ask you this. When people, I came off the Bachelor, people said, describe your edit in one quick blurb. I said, uh, I think I would call it the underdog, the underdog heartbreak. That's what it was. Give me a little blurb. How would you summarize what you think? You never know. Yeah. But what you think we can expect from Tyler. In season two and three? Yeah. I definitely come out of my shell a lot more. I think season one, people saw me as somebody who was a little bit reserved and I kind of lit myself on fire to keep some other people warm sort of a thing. I, I, I didn't really tell my truth, which is something that we we touched on. And so this season, I think I speak up a bit more which is good and a, a skill that maybe I needed to learn to have. So we'll see. I don't know. All right. He is getting a little spicy in season getting two. Spicy. That's what I like to see. And that's what we heard. All right, Tyler, what is one trading secret you could leave us with? Somebody very wise said, this ain't no dress rehearsal. And so if you're going to do it, do it. And if you're going to half-ass it, don't waste your time. Wow. I love that. I have a little Monopoly board and it has the guest and you could scan it and listen to the episode and then it just takes one little quote from there. I already see it. (laughs) This ain't no dress rehearsal. That is one hell of a trading secret. Tyler, thank you so much for coming on. This was absolutely unbelievable. Where can people find more of Tyler if they want to reach out, if they want to follow your story? Where can they find you? You can find me on Instagram, just my name, Tyler Staniland, and then you can see what happens in the on selling VOC on Netflix at some point this year for seasons two and three.
selling the OC. Tyler's getting a little spicier. Check out season two <laughs> and three, whatever they do, come out and make sure to go give Tyler a follow. Tyler, thank you for being on this episode of Trading Secrets. Thanks for having me. That was fun. Ding, ding, ding. We are closing in the bell with the one, the only, the curious Canadian. And before I even turn it over to you, David, we this is a moment here. This is a moment for the podcast. We released our first episode with Dear Media, May 24th, 2021. And this will be the last recap that we do under the Dear Media Network. We're forever thankful for them taking our idea and making it a reality and helping us grow to where we are. But we are moving on to a new network. We'll tell you more about that in future episodes. We are thankful again for everything for Dear Media, but this is it. This is the last recap. After two years with Dear Media, David, before we talk even about that episode, talk to me. What are you thinking? Yeah, not the last recap ever. We're going to keep doing these things. So don't think yes. that I'm going anywhere. You're not kick, getting rid of me so easy. But yes, the last episode in our run with Dear Media, I will never forget hopping on a Zoom call two plus years ago. Me and Jason and Evan, wide-eyed, smiley face with all the representatives from Dear Media, trying to figure out what the show is going to look like and, you know, how we want to segment it and what the structure wants to be. And, you know, kicking off that first episode with Dean, it was just kind of all surreal that it was happening. And I'll never forget our goal, Jay. We said if we can get three to 5,000 downloads per episode, that was our goal. And I think Dean hit 90,000 after its first three months in existence. So <laughs> pretty surreal. Two-year anniversary of that. Super thankful for Dear Media for giving us our start and all the thing that they all the work that they did for us. Absolutely. It has been a pleasure. We have new exciting things coming. You guys will know about that. We'll be growing this show. Maybe a couple more episodes a week. Maybe a little bit education and pop culture. All the things are coming. Just remember to give us five stars on Apple. Any suggestions you have, follow us on Instagram. Follow us on YouTube. Give us all the love for trading secrets and we'll make sure to keep putting the work in and giving you as much as you can get out of these episodes. Tyler Stanilant. David. What do you got? Well, I'm going to kick it off where he started, which was the Dubai trip. Well, and yeah. the thing that I thought about that, one, I just, I got to say, hearing you describe it, and we did a little bit of a podcast on it. He said it was about as perfect that there were gold flakes floating in the air. That was like the <laughs> the definition that he used to describe the luxury of it all, which kind of painted a fun picture. But as I was thinking about Dubai and Tyler and how he even came on the podcast, it kind of goes to show a little bit of what we talk about in networking a lot. It's not like you went to Dubai expecting a certain ROI for yourself, and little did you know, you ended up getting introduced to Tyler in Dubai. He's on the podcast. You're seeing an ROI in probably a way that you never thought by taking on the trip in the first place. So that was kind of a, a little bit of, of, of a business takeaway is you just never know, right? Put yourselves out there, go to these opportunities, these events, and you never know what will come for, for both parties as well. So that's a little takeaway that I had, which I thought was really interesting. Oh, I think that's a great takeaway. I think the other one, too, that's really interesting is I looked up the article that he was looking at when I passed him. And it's okay. from E! News. Tyler Staniland enjoys a trip to Dubai alongside selling the OC co-star Alex Hall amid his divorce. What I didn't know is that this was the day after apparently Britney filed for divorce. Mm. So it was the day after. And then there's all these stories that people were putting together, collaging together between Alex's experience, Tyler's experience. And then they could see at times they're in the same place at the same time, just one day after. So I could see why he would be freaking out a little bit because apparently 
this was fueling romance rumors that occurred in season one of Selling OC. But he cleared the record straight, at least from his mouth. There were nothing going on. I can certainly attest to the fact that on this trip, you only got a plus one. And he was there with his brother. So I could totally see how he wouldn't know someone else was going. I didn't know some of the Bachelor people were going. So I will say that. But yeah, crazy stuff. Good times to network with people. And you just never know how things come full circle. And when we reached out, I think we even referenced that we saw each other in Dubai. So that's the name of the game. And that's, David, why we've never paid for a guest on Trading Secrets and hopefully never will have to. Have you ever really kept thinking and looking back on that trip a little bit? Like he said, he had imposter syndrome of like, why was he there? Like he even referenced you. He's like, you have seven times the following that I have. Like, so, like he's he's looking at you like, oh my God, Jason Tardik's here. What am I doing here? Uh, you're doing the same thing with everybody else. It, it was also, I just got to say, it was really funny to hear the PR, like the shock of it being real with how how it was presented to him and how he signed out for it in like two weeks. <laughs> he thought the like same thing. Like it came to fruition. So it's for such a big scale event. But have you reflected on that a little bit? Has it made a little bit more sense to you as you look at it like from a business analytic thing on on terms of, you know, the the business and the sponsorship? David, none of this, honestly. I mean, like at the end of the day, we did. Evan, you're Evan, you're on this call. How many millions of impressions? Because we had to retally them up. We did close to 10 million impressions wow. from the from the uh, content we put out. Evan, do you know the number by chance? Wow. Wow. So, so David, when I think about that, yeah. like that experience led to 12 million impressions. I think that justifies it. But the real me is just like, I don't know why any of this stuff happens. I don't know. Like, I still don't figure it out. Evan told me about a really big deal we just got yesterday with a great company and an activation I'm so excited about. So it's huge. And he told me that the casting process was 150 people, and a lot of those people had a lot more followers and relevance than I did. So I just kept saying, like, what? Like, what is it? Like, I need to know. Like, keep telling me what it is so I keep doing it. And the sentiment we got was, like, just continue to keep being you because a lot of people, because that's what they bought. That's what they wanted to work with is you. So, David, I can't make sense of any of this stuff. I don't know. I guess just keep doing what you got to do. And the the realer you become, the more you open the door, just, I guess, the more success that comes. Just keep taking those free trips to Dubai, and you just never know what's going to keep happening from them. That's, Shit, that's man, the bottom I don't line. Know. Just say you put yourself in positions, I guess, to get lucky. Just that say was yes. what uh, Colton Underwood told me, and I like that. There you go. And shout just out to say Colton. Yes. Happy, happy, congratulations to Colton. He just got married last weekend, so I saw some pictures with him and Harrison, and congratulations yep. to Colton. Amazing, amazing. Moving right. up, pivoting to got? the realist. <laughs> we're yeah. going in I all got, directions got, on this last wow. recap here with the media. No, we're good. <laughs> Well, people love the banter, so maybe we just scrap the script and just go right to the banter. But uh, <laughs> I, I do got to say, when when you reference the real estate portion, we've had a lot of realtors on the pod, uh, especially realtors in the TV industry. But a couple things he did reference, obviously, Jason Oppenheim. If you haven't, if you're listening to this pod for the first time or you're a Tyler Standaland fan and you haven't listened to previous episodes, you must go to the Jason Oppenheim episode because we set the table in the intro for exactly what Jay was talking about in terms of what is this? How much time? No, I can't do it. It was, it's a must, must, must go back and watch. But one takeaway I did have from like, you know, sitting at home, what can I take away? What can I do from this episode? Which I thought was really uh, important and intriguing was how he said people can afford more than they think in the housing market. He suggested go to a lender and get pre-approved and f- to find out more. I thought that was really interesting. And as a, a fairly new home buyer, something that a process that I thought was a, a lot more seamless and easy and knowledge is power. So 
What are the benefits and how can people go find out what their pre-approval limit might be for a home, even if they're not looking for one for the knowledge of it all? Okay. So there's two big things you got to know about pre-approvals. One, there's pre-qualification. So if you're curious of like how much you can afford, uh, a bank will allow that. They'll sit down with you and they will tell you what they could possibly give you. So it's a good, useful estimate of how much someone can afford to spend on a home. So if you're you're lost there, just go to a banker and say, I'm looking for a pre-qualification. Now, a pre-approval, excuse me, is going to be much more like, uh, I would say much more legitimate, much more professional. You'll want to get a pre-approval before you ever start negotiating with a buyer. And in my opinion, these days, you want a pre-approval before you even hire on an agent because you can show them the legitimacy of the 60 to 90 day pre-approval, which says the bank has gone through everything, your employment, your assets, your income statement returns, your credit score, all your background to say, we are willing to lend you this much and everyone will take you more serious in the process. And by the way, what an unbelievable benchmark to know how much the bank will pre-approve you for. If you don't like doing financial due diligence yourself, don't do it. Let the bank give you your scorecard. So it's a good, great way to get a scorecard for what you can afford and a great way to just also understand what the bank is looking for when they go through these mortgage processes and why. Now, one of the things I have to put out there, David, in the 2008 mortgage crisis, this was an advice I would recommend, and here's why. Because banks were making so much money off giving people more and more money, they were giving people money they couldn't afford to pay back. And that's what happened in the mortgage crisis. There was a big balloon and everything popped. Now there's so much regulation in the space that they really have to do their due diligence on your financials for them to be able to give you the range of a mortgage that'll reduce all or most liability to them. So that's my my quick little take on that. I like it. And it's something like knowledge is power. We talk about it all the time. Like educate yourself in this. It only takes a fraction of time to go and get this information. And when it comes time that you are in the house buying process, just knowing these things will help, help, help you make decisions and help you get more realistic. And to be honest, efficient with your time. You don't want to be like David Arduin, who, uh, who viewed 35 homes and put eight offers in and showed up to some of those without pre-approval letters. And you want to be as educated as you can, because that is as in many stressful processes of life. Uh, the home buying process. I still can't get over the home buying process. You go to her house for five minutes and then you're expected to put an offer down for 10x the biggest purchase you've ever made in your life. It's like, I look for a pair of shoes longer than I look for a house. Yeah, it's so funny. And actually, David, it's I'm going to walk people through the process I go through. I'm right now looking like for a small, it's like a small office, like commercial property, right? So like, you know, maybe like 300,000 to 600,000. I could use it for residential if I want to rent it out. I can use it for studio space, office space, et cetera, because I was talking to my accountant. I have to, I really, really want to reduce my tax liability because I'm, I'm paying a lot, ton of taxes. And so if I can reduce that, I can do it through something called bonus to appreciation. So essentially, uh, I'll give you a very quick and dirty on it and tell me if it clicks. The land is worth 100,000. The building is worth 500. The residential piece off space is 500,000. I'm not going to get in the weeds. I'm going to keep it super high level. You take the difference of the building and then you take the difference of the actual land. So you know, 600,000 total. I can only write off the building, which is 500,000 based on the depreciation schedule of everything in that building. But let's just assume it meets criteria. I can write off 80% in the first year 
of that 500,000. So I can put a $400,000 loss for this year. Okay. Right. So if suppose my, suppose my income was, let's just make it up, right? My income is 700 grand. If I could write off 400 grand from investing in this space, Mm -hmm. now my income is 300 K. And so now I'm only being taxed on 300 K. So now I have an asset, the assets appreciating, right? It's real estate and reducing my taxable liability. So anyway, we'll talk more about that stuff, but it does have to do with real estate. And so does does. this episode. And and the power of, again, knowledge is power. Just like we talked about, knowledge is power to your accountant. One last thing that I'll talk about from this episode with Tyler, what we just talked about is a, a tactical thing that you can take away and go do. Another is just, you know, I love leaving with little tidbits in our brain and asking ourselves, are we doing this? Can we do more? He said in uh, in the past, he he lit himself on fire just to keep other people warm. Uh, he teased this season saying he he speaks his truth more. He makes his thoughts be heard. I thought that was really cool. Like, I think we've all been in situations where, you know, we do so much just to make other people feel better about themselves. But at, at the end of the day, we're kind of putting ourselves in a little box or maybe not seeing our self-worth because we're so worried about propping up others and, and getting their approval. So if you're feeling that, if you're feeling like you're not being heard or you're not reaching your self-worth while at the same time going out of your way to make people feel theirs, maybe you need to just listen to Tyler and look at the mirror and, uh, you know, grab a cold brew coffee and just enter that room and just explode with energy and excitement and passion and get yours, you know? I like that, get ours. That topic there is about... I would say 15 to 20% on average of all my therapy sessions. So <laughs> that definitely connects with me. <laughs> and I'm drinking a cold brew right now. That's why I'm uh, I'm all fired up. So Oh, I'm I'm gonna about, I'm about to do the opposite of a cold brew. I'm about to go take a Xanax because I gotta go back to the doctor. So I'm getting mm-hmm. my my LDLs updated because I, I went three okay. and a half months on a pretty serious diet. Three and a half months is tough to tough to make a massive impact, but even if I could see slight adjustment down, I'll be super excited. And yes, I'm still terrified of needles. So I gotta take yeah, a Xanax. Yeah, I've, I've been relax. seeing pictures of your grocery cart the last three months. I think you could make a pretty good impact eating like a rabbit like you have for three and a half months. So I'm excited. We'll I'm hoping you get the, what you deserve. Pro- the only problem is I've slipped up a little bit in the last well, two weeks. But you know, well, yeah, I've, Kentucky I've Derby will do that to you. I mean, here's the thing. Here's what I have done. Pretty much no eggs, no red mm-hmm. meat, very, very, very limited amount of fried food, almost no fast food, uh, almost no cheese, mm. pretty much no sweets. Mm. So I went ham we'll I went ham I went ham this weekend, Mother's Day. Yeah. First Mother's Day. Just everything, you just clean it all up. You remember Cheesy Eddie's in Rochester? First Mother's. Oh my God. Cheesy yeah. Eddie's. Unbelievable. Yeah. I got a carrot cake and a cheesecake, Oreo cheesecake. It was dynamite. Wow. Yeah. You're coming well, back. I'm excited to I'm see you. Back. You're going to meet Carter. This, You're going to meet Carter for the first time. Very excited. I'm going to meet Carter. I can't wait. This episode comes out Monday and the day before this, I'll be with David the whole weekend, meeting mm-hmm. Carter, hanging out, probably eating some cheesy Eddie's, saying, <laughs> fuck my cholesterol. We'll give you an update on how that stuff goes. In the meantime, we are trying to make sure that we schedule a doctor to come on. But holy smokes, do we have a lineup there of guests coming on. We have Sheena from Vanderpump coming on. We have Wells Adams coming on. We have Chris Voss, the biggest negotiator, literally of all time, the highest FBA negotiator out there. We have Damon John coming on. We have Barbara Corcoran coming on. We have former Wedding design international renowned superstar Haley Page, who now can't go as Haley Page because of legal battles, coming on. This list is endless, and I know I missed a few names intentionally because I want some surprises, but 
they're coming. These episodes will be fire. And next week when we see you, we will be on a new network, no longer with Dear Media, but we want to thank Dear Media for everything they've done to support the show. David, anything you got before we close it out? Special shout out to Marshall, our editing guru. Yeah, Thanks for all your Marshall. work, Marshall. Without Marshall, this show wouldn't exist. So thank you, Marshall. And David, actually, I'm going to say one last thing. Yeah. For all of our YouTube watchers here, you can go to YouTube, subscribe to Trink Secrets. You can see the whole thing here. I promise I'm not high. I promise. Allergies. <laughs> but David, you really liked this hat. Love. You really you think we could do something, maybe trading secrets, maybe not, a little higher green? Not like love. That's a not like love hat. You came on. I said instantly, I said, give me that color scheme. Give me that two-way color com- combo. Give me a little trade trading secrets insignia. <laughs> on there and i'm rocking it. i'm rocking it every day insignia all right well go to youtube check out this hat let us know in the reviews or the comments if you think we should make some hats let us know in the meantime i'm about to go pop a xanax and head to the doctor's office tune in next week to another episode of trading secrets one you can't afford to miss note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.